Good morning. Good. If you know me at all, you know I like a bit of response, so feel free to heckle in a nice way, if there is such a thing. Listen, before I start, I hope you don't mind, I, I just really sense, I wonder if maybe there's some people here this morning and you're here reluctantly um, for whatever reason, and I just felt to say that, you know, I'm praying that I believe that God would whisper to you this morning something that will speak to your heart. Um, you know, even our, in our reluctance, God can speak to us. And so if that's you, you know, please just say a prayer to God that you're here, even if it's reluctantly, but that your heart's open. Um, so if, you know, that may be one person in the room, it may be a few, but I just thought I'd share that. So um, I, I don't know where we are, because I've been away for a couple of weeks, whether we've gone beyond chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians or we haven't, no getting shakes of heads. Well, that's good. It's all in order. So we're coming to probably one of the most famous passages of scripture in the whole of the Bible, and it's all about love. And you know, the world um, has lots to say about love, doesn't it? You know, if, if I ask randomly, did anyone know a song about love? It's one of the first things we can think of. There's so many songs about love. There's movies about love. You know, it's just everywhere. And really the definition of love is being shaped by all these things in the world. But you know what? God has something to say about love. And he, in fact, he has lots to say about love. And this chapter is, is one of those um, passages where it just tells us all about love. And it's part of the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church that we've been looking at. So that's where we're at. Um, you've probably heard this passage. Has anyone been to a wedding? Has anyone been to a wedding? Yes. Okay. So you've probably heard this passage read out at a wedding. You know, it's very beautiful and well-crafted, and you might think maybe Paul should have been a poet instead of a pastor. It's beautiful. And it goes like this. Love is patient. I'm trying to do it in my best poet reciting voice, but love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. And this is the big finish. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And we think, yes, this is so inspirational. This is exactly how I'm going to love my husband or my wife. This is how I'm going to love my kids. This is how I'm going to love my friends. I'm just so inspired right now. However, if you were a Corinthian Christian hearing this letter read out for the first time, your reaction would be so different. It would actually be one of hurt and disbelief and anger and confusion. And the reason is, is that this letter, this part of the letter, is not a piece of fluffy inspirational writing. Paul didn't sit down one afternoon and think, hmm, what is love? He sat down one afternoon with deep sorrow in his heart to write to his beloved church a most painful um, and difficult and challenging letter about their ungodly behavior. He even says in his second letter to them that he felt awful at the time of writing and that he knew that it would cause them pain. He says, for I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. You have to remember, Paul is writing this and tears are spilling onto the page as he writes to people that he cares so deeply about and he cares about their eternal future. 
It's not a lovey-dovey, fluffy piece of writing that you can put on a fridge magnet, you know, and, and remember occasionally. As we read it, you'll see it's actually a painful rebuke to the Corinthian church, where Paul is essentially saying to them, are you even Christian at all? So when, you, when we read it, these, you have to hear it with that in mind. So let's have a look. It's going to come up on the screen. Sorry, it's so tiny. It looked massive on my computer screen. Um, okay, let's read. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease, and where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, and I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So here's the background to what's going on. We've, we've been learning a little bit about it as we go along. Corinth was, was a city where people went to make it big. That's what you went to Corinth for. It attracted brilliant, visionary, driven, talented, high-achieving people. Um, and it was a totally diverse city where lots of people would come. And uh, they had one thing in common, and that was to be successful and to become rich no matter what rules they had to break um, to do that. Historians say it was one of the most dog-eat-dog, success-orientated, sex-obsessed cities in the world. And probably a perfect place to plant a church. The historians didn't say that, that was me. So, so when these same people um, started becoming Christians, all these things, their drive, their vision, their passion, their intelligence, all these things didn't just disappear, they just transferred into the church. And so the Corinthian church was a brilliant church. Whatever they put their hand to, they succeeded at. They saw loads of healings and miracles. They were eloquent speakers. They could heal people. They had revelations from God. Um, they built up successful ministries. They were fantastic worship leaders. They helped people and they had faith to move mountains. They really were at the front of the queue when it came to spiritual gifts. And from the outside looking in, you might think, wow. What a church. What is going on in this church? It's amazing. And yet this church that was doing the most, seeing the most, experiencing the most, they were seeing the most miracles. It was also the most troubled church. It also had the most jealousy, the most pride, the most fighting, the most moral lapses, the most legalism. 
So in spite of all these gifts that the Lord had showered upon them, they were characterized by pride and envy and rudeness and selfishness, which is the exact opposite of the description of love that Paul then goes on to say. So think about it. He's already in the previous chapters pointed out their lack of love. And now this is like a bombshell. He's saying, this is what he says, if I speak in tongues but don't love, then I'm just empty noise, like a clanging cymbal. My, my boys, when they were younger, they had these cymbals. They used to bang together, and it was the most irritating sound ever, and somehow those cymbals have magically been lost. It's wonderful. <laughs> a clanging cymbal is irritating. It's attention-grabbing. It's unharmonious. It's unpleasant. And this is what Paul's saying if you don't have love. He says, I can stand up here on a Sunday morning, preach a really great message, you know, draw people closer to Jesus. But if I'm not a loving person, then I'm nothing. He doesn't even say I'm spiritually immature. He says I'm nothing. That's such strong language. Think about the Corinthians hearing that. They're used to being something. And then he says, I can give everything to the poor. I can be willing to die for the cause. But if I'm not characterized by love, then it's all been for nothing. So he's saying, I am nothing, it's all been for nothing, I'm just a noisy um, gong. All the doing without the loving is just noise to God. So now you begin to understand how painful that letter was, how painful it must have been for those Christians to hear that coming out you know, of their pastor's mouth. They're used to being top dog, successful, good at everything they do. They're used to being something, not nothing. And Paul says, Everything you're doing in vain is in vain because there's no love shown towards one another. And what struck me, what's quite alarming about this passage is that it's possible to have the Spirit of God come into a person's life and give them great spiritual gifts even if they haven't surrendered their heart to Jesus. But it's not possible for the Spirit of God to produce spiritual fruit like love and humility and patience because that requires a surrendering of the heart. So you think, that surely can't be possible. God can't use people who are not Christians. You know, he can't shower them with gifts and yet not have surrendered their heart to the Lord. Well, think about Judas. Judas was one of Jesus' friends and a disciple. And in Matthew 10, it says that God gave the disciples, including Judas, the power to heal, the power to cast out demons and so on. Judas was able to do all those things, the same as everyone else, and yet he wasn't a Christian. His heart hadn't been changed by grace at all. So that's quite scary, but it's also quite exciting. You know, God's not limited to us, those who have surrendered their heart. He can use anyone to speak to you, which is really exciting. So um, my boys, they love to play um, video games, a racing car video game, and they love to show me their skills. They think they're wonderful at this racing car game. And I come in, and it's on two. Uh, it's on a screen, and it's um, split into two, and each player has their part of the screen. And sometimes they play against each other, which always ends in a fight. And sometimes they play against the computer. Now, one day I went in, and Cully was playing against the computer, and he's like, "Mom, mom, come and see me." So I ran in, and I'm like. Cully, you're doing great. You know, he was taking those bends fantastically. It was amazing. He was lapping all the other cars and he was coming to the finish line and I'm, you know, being a good mum, getting all excited and cheering him on. And he crosses the finish line miles ahead of everyone else. And I'm like, yes, Cully. And I went in for a high five. And he 
just, he's like, he just looked at me and he went, Mum, I've got three laps still to go. I was like, what? I had been looking at the wrong screen. The reality was he was on screen underneath and he was crashing at every bend and he was being lapped by every other car. It wasn't good. The point is, in a roundabout way, let's not look at the wrong screen in terms of our spiritual life. Let's not fool ourselves by looking at our gifts, by how well we preach, by how well we lead worship, by how well we counsel people, by how many people we help. You know, let's not assure ourselves that our relationship with God must be good because of the success of what we're doing. What's going on underneath? What's on that bottom screen? What's really going on? Listen, gifting is not the measuring tape of our Christianity, which is a good thing, because gifting is limited. Some of you might be gifted this much, some this much, some this much, but gifting is limited. There's always going to be an end to your gifting, a limit to your gifting, but do you know what's not limited? Is fruit of the Spirit. Love, patience. You can, you know, instead of striving to be the best worship leader, strive to be the most humble person. This is the fruit of the Spirit that God's saying, go for it, fill your boots, be the best you can. You know? Gifts are limited. If you're looking at me maybe, or anyone up here, thinking, I could never do that. Why can't I do that? Do you know what? You've got an even better thing that you can excel in, which is love. And this is what Paul says. Listen. He says, all these gifts that you have are limited. They will come to an end because they won't be needed anymore. Um, But one thing will last forever. Let me show you a far better way. And then he begins to tell them about love. So do you follow what's happening here? He's saying to them, gifting is not the thing. You know, gifting is, um, it says more about God than it does about us. You know what? Here you go. Now, I've just given you a gift and you can keep that. Who does that say more about? I'm not, I'm meaning this as an illustration. I'm not trying to point to myself. It says more about the giver, doesn't it? Our gifts say something about God, not about us. He's the one that gives. We always need to be pointing to him. But you know what? Paul knows what the Corinthians are like, and so he's careful not to present love as another skill to be mastered. He's not saying you must be patient. You must be kind. Love is not a behavioral checklist. He's talking about love as a person, someone you can meet. And he's saying, hey, Corinthians, I don't think you've ever met love before. Let me introduce you. His name is Jesus. And he's the only person that can love perfectly in this way. I remember someone once giving me marital advice. Well, actually, it was just before I got married. It was a very long time ago. And they said, here is the way to be a perfect, loving wife. Instead of the word love in this passage, just put your own name and just say it every day, a bit like a mantra, and and it'll all be good. So, sitting down, I'm like, Julie is patient. Julie is kind. 
And as I went on, I'm like, this person has turned me into a complete liar. I can't do all this. This is just not going to happen. You know, Julie is not patient all the time, and Julie is kind some of the time, and Julie sometimes envies. This is just a standard I cannot meet. Nobody except Jesus can meet this. So why is Paul, ex- you know, why is he, is he setting the Corinthians up for a fail? How is it possible to live a life of love? You know, we can't produce this love by ourselves. We can try really, really hard, and it might last for a while, but we can't sustain it. So what's the secret to loving this way? And this is really the message. There's one answer. It's really simple. The answer is to be a receiver of God's love first. The the secret to living loved is to be a receiver um, of God's love first. You know, you might have been told as you're growing up, oh, it's far better to give than to receive. Well, in this case, that's a complete lie. It's far better to receive first than only we can give love. Um, I don't know if you've heard of a guy called Tim Keller. He writes some good stuff, and he says, before love is a behavior to a Christian, love is an experience. You have to meet love first. And we have to be shattered by that love, captured by that love, and only then it can empower your heart to love. You know, he's saying, you need to understand why we're loved and, you know, what Jesus has done for us. There's a story in Luke chapter 7 of a sinful woman. She's referred to as a sinful woman. The assumption is she's the prostitute who comes and weeps at the feet of Jesus while he's at a dinner party. And she's crying about all the sinful stuff that she's done in her life. And she's sorry. And she comes to Jesus and something in her knows that Jesus can give this incredible Um, unexplainable love and acceptance and forgiveness that no one else can forgive her and her heart responds with love we'll just read it should come up I think okay it's starting halfway through that's all right I'll read it to you when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Jesus answered him, I love that. Do you realize the man didn't say that out loud? And Jesus answered him and said, Simon, I have something to tell you. He's like, tell me, teacher. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender, and one owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown but whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. The woman knew she needed forgiveness, 
She knew she needed the kind of love in her life that nobody but Jesus was able to love her like. And her response was to love him back. She received love and she was able to love back. And I'm pretty sure it doesn't say, but I'm quite certain she was able to then go out back and love people in the way that she had received that love. The last verse says, whoever has been forgiven little loves little. You know, um, the Pharisee, he didn't even seem to realize that he needed that forgiveness and love. We can't give what we've never received. If we've never received love, then how can we love others? The writer Max Licado says, instructing people to love without telling them they are loved is like telling them to write a check without making a deposit in their accounts. For example, John does this. He's, he makes a deposit before he tells us to write the check. In 1 John 4, he says, God showed how much he loved us by sending his only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. It's not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. In other words, we love because he first loved us. And then he says, right, it's time to pull out the checkbook. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love one another. It's about receiving first and then being able to draw on that. And I just wonder this morning if some of us feel like you've got nothing to draw on in your account. Perhaps you're overdrawn. Perhaps you feel your heart's have been drained and there's insufficient love. Maybe you're tired of loving and not being loved back. This morning, I really believe that God wants to make a deposit into your heart, every single one of us, so that love becomes the driving force in everything that we do. Not our gifts, not our power, not our talents. It wasn't Jesus' power that drove him down here. It was his love. You know, some of us might have been Christians for a long time. Do you remember how much God loves you? Maybe you've never known his love. Maybe you're like, what is this love you're talking about? God this morning wants to make a deposit in your heart. I just wonder, will you, will you let him do that? I'm just going to um, read, sorry. I'm just going to read some deposits out. I just pray that you open your heart and hear some of that and be a receiver this morning. Here's a deposit. God loves you passionately. Others have promised and failed, but God has promised and succeeded. He loves with an unfailing love. And it's that love that fills you and transforms you to love people as he does. Here's another deposit. God loves you simply because he has chosen to do so. He loves you when you don't feel lovely or lovable. He loves you when no one else loves you. Others may abandon you, they may divorce you, they may reject you, they may ignore you. But God loves you always, no matter what. Here's another deposit. 
His love never fails. It's permanent. It will last forever. It never dies. It's eternal. And here's another deposit. God isn't just loving. He is love. It's in his nature to love and nothing can stop him. He doesn't love us because of our goodness and our kindness and our faith. He loves us because of his goodness and his kindness and his faith. He chooses to do it. His love doesn't hinge on our love. We can love him loads and it won't change his love. We can love him less and it won't change his love. It's so wonderfully steady. His love is wonderfully steady. And he can't not love you because he is love. And here's more. Are you, are you being filled up here? It's good. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 to 8 said, The Lord did not choose you and lavish his love on you because you were larger or greater than other nations, for you were the smallest of all nations. It was simply because the Lord loves you. Jeremiah 31, 3 says, I have loved you, my people, with an everlasting love. With unfailing love, I have drawn you to myself. And Ephesians 3 says, may your roots go down deep into the soil of God's marvelous love. You know, my prayer this morning is this goes from your head into your heart, okay? When, when we love, when we receive this love, I, I tell you, it makes it easier to love people. If you want to become more loving, begin by accepting your place as a dearly loved child of God. Ephesians 5 says, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us. If you want to be a more forgiving person, then just consider how much you've been forgiven. Ephesians 4 says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as in Christ God forgave you. If you're finding it hard to put others first, think of the way Christ put you first. Philippians 2 says, though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights. You know, for me as a mum, when, when my boys are being boys and I'm at the end of myself and my patience and then I consider just how patient God is with me, it becomes easier to be patient with my boys. That's how his love works. You know, if you've got a friend who's difficult to love, who's hard to be around, you know, maybe consider how sometimes we might be difficult to love, you know, and God's great love, like this is how it works. It's powerful. You need to receive it and then you live it out and it works. It's not always easy, but it, when, when it works, it works. The secret to loving people is living loved by God. And you know, God is calling City Church, City Church St. Macker, to be a people marked and known for their love, not by their gifts. Not, you know, I know Chuck and Taryn, they wouldn't want this church to be known as the church with the great speakers and the great musicians and the great, um, you know, counsellors and, and the great prayer team and the great tea and coffee people and the great mad team. That's not what they would want. What, what, what they would want is a church known for love marked by love, driven by love in everything that they do. But first of all, we all individually, we need to be receivers of that love. And then we can read 1 Corinthians in a new way and we can say, Christ in Julie is kind. Christ in Julie is patient and so on. It's the love of, it's receiving that love first. 
And you know what? Then God loves the world through us. That's what the Bible says. He loves the world through us, us individually in our different areas that we're in and us as a church as a whole. And we become a church that's driven by love and not by gifting. I just want to share one final thing, and it's a bit of a personal story, so excuse me um, for doing that, but I just, you know, I've been a Christian for over 25 years. I know you must think I must have become a Christian when I was one, but... um, Um, I, you know, we don't get to choose what passage we speak on. We're given passages. And I, at first I thought, this is amazing. You know, this is like, everyone knows this one. It's fantastic. But as I was preparing, I really felt like, have I ever truly known the love of God? Am I loving people out of love that I've received or love that I've manufactured? And um, I said, God, I don't want to stand up here this morning and speak on something that I know nothing of. And um, I just said, God, you need to show me what your love means. You need to show me your love. So I was just um, in a, in a, having time with God. And he said, imagine, picture your two sons in front of you, Kali and Judah. And he said, no, pick one. Pick one. You can only have one. And I was just like, what? You know, God chose you over Jesus. In that moment, God chose you over Jesus. That's what he said to me. I chose you over Jesus. And Jesus chose you over God in that moment. And he said, that's what it's like. It's like you having to choose. Jesus gave up the great love of his father because of his own love for you. He gave up the love of his father for your benefit, for my benefit. God chose you over himself. That's the very heart and the very definition of God's love that he eternally gives of himself for others. And I just, I was so thankful to God in that moment for showing me really, truly what he's done for me. And I think for the first time in years, I I was able to receive just a new um, experience. I met Jesus in that moment. And I guess what I'm leading up to is that I pray that that is something that you can experience. Um, Because that's what it's all about, right? Love, God's love. And you know what? When we let that sink into our hearts, we can love in a way that is inexplainable. And we can sustain that love through the Holy Spirit.